what I want you to do is take your Bible this morning, look back over into the Gospel of John, and I really, really wanted to kind of forge ahead and go and finish this chapter, but I want you to know two weeks ago when I was in the pulpit um, on the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, I got so many questions, great questions from that message two weeks ago that I thought maybe it would be wise, I thought maybe it would be prudent to address one more week kind of freestanding on the believer's eternal security. In fact, I had so many questions on that Sunday uh, that just this week, one night, I just, I couldn't sleep um, at all. I was just thinking about all the questions, thinking about the truth from Scripture. And on that particular night, I got up and I wrote out this entire message. And uh, hopefully, I mean that would be good if I stayed up super late, but I just felt like I needed to get out of bed and sometimes just get my thoughts on paper, and it just all appeared to me rather quickly, which is obviously not normal. So here you have it this morning is just another week on the believer's eternal security. Maybe it'd be appropriate if I just opened up with the question, can one lose their salvation? Can one lose their salvation? Can one fall from grace? And then I think just uh, two weeks ago, I, I think maybe I would say it this way, the, it, it appeared to me just a little bit of the confusion on this topic and the confusion in people's hearts with this question. What do you do with the scores of people today that claim a commitment to Christ and then fall away from him? I mean, that was really the question I got out on the patio. And really the question was, Scott, are they saved? Are they saved? And usually that is a code question for this question. Did they lose their, what? Salvation. It's a very real question, is it not? And, and part of the hardship behind that is you know a lot of people and you grow up with people, and I grew up with scores of them, who at one point in time appeared to be bearing fruit, appeared to be walking with Christ, and that at some juncture in their life they fall, they depart, and so people don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with those who have been around the truth, and seemingly in the truth, and then somehow depart from the truth altogether. And then the question would be, can they lose their salvation? I listened to um, some messages, probably not, I wouldn't advise you to do this, but I went on YouTube, and I saw a number of men, of course, that teach that the doctrine of eternal security is a false truth. 
just right out, just this is not true. You say, well, Scott, what do you think about the, those men who don't believe in the doctrine of eternal security? Well, I listened to him and I thought, this guy's totally sincere. You say, is he a Bible preacher? Sure, he's a Bible preacher. But he's just interpreting the scripture wrong. But just list after list of people who say that you can lose your salvation. There's a story that I like to tell, and I think my wife shared it at the women's Bible story, but it's given by the great preacher Donald Barnhouse. He was a great preacher in London in the previous century. And he tells of a group of soldiers that were captured during a long war many years ago. And they were held for years at a prisoner of war compound. And Red Cross would deliver packages that would come to these, come to these soldiers. And often it would help with these packages, the soldiers pass the time. And one of those, and at times, a monopoly game came. And soldiers being soldiers used the monopoly money for all kinds of transactions, but especially for gambling. And many a night was passed playing poker using the yellow, green, blue, red pieces of money. And as usually it happens, one of the soldiers excelled in this and succeeded at drawing most of the money into his own pockets. He became the prisoner of war camp's captain of industry, amassing a small fortune in his monopoly currency. Finally, the long-awaited day came when the war ended and the prisoners were all sent home. And the wealthy soldier took the first opportunity to visit a bank and open an account. And proudly, he dipped into the bag and, that he had carried from far away and he scooped out the yellow $100 bills, the golden $500 bills onto the counter. And of course, the bank teller refused to accept any of the monopoly money. And the point is, is that whatever comfort we derive from various sources that assure us of our salvation or assure us of our security, what matters most is that our assurance or our security has currency with God. I mean, how crushing it was for the soldier to learn that he was in fact penniless. But beloved, how much more crushing it will be for the falsely assured sinner who spends his or her days in false assurance that in the end leads not to heaven, but to hell. I mean, is it possible, Grace Church of the Valley, to know in this life where you will spend eternity? Do you live secure or do you live, as I said a couple of weeks ago, with eternal insecurity? I mean, the, the truth is you could know, and we spent time on that two weeks ago. You can have assurance of your salvation. You can know that your salvation is secure. But what I want to do, just as almost as a practical application to you, is provide you with three clarifying truths from God's word on the eternal security of the believer, okay? Rather than just proceed ahead in John, which I'll do when I get back and we'll finish the chapter, but I want to give you three clarifying truths from God's word on the eternal security of the believer. And it answers the question of my title this morning, how can I be 
sure. Okay? So let me walk this through with you here. There's three truths. Here's the first truth. is Scripture's affirmation of eternal security. Now, two weeks ago, John stated that we can know and have eternal security. He said very authoritatively there, look at 1028, I give them eternal life. Now, remember, it's very important as we talk about eternal security, who he made that statement to. And I don't have time to unpack all that we've already looked at. Go listen online. But he unpacked that truth of eternal security to the true sheep. And we might ask the question, well, who are the true sheep that he gives eternal life to in verse 28? Well, just back up one verse. It couldn't be clear. He said this there, authoritatively, my sheep, he said, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so here were the true sheep identified. There were thieves and robbers, false sheep, but there were the true sheep. And who were the true sheep and who are they today? They are those who hear the voice of God out of his word. And they are those who follow me, Jesus said, in other words, into obedience. And so the Lord said that he gives them in 1028 eternal life. He gives you everlasting life. In other words, this is the promise of eternal security is that your salvation is forever settled in glory. And we noted that, that our Lord is not an Indian giver. He doesn't give you something and then have you lose something. And so as I'm kind of quickly scanning these these sermons, which is not wise on YouTube, um, I can just already tell that the guy's structure is he's thinking if you chose Christ on your own and you fall away, then you can fall out of grace. But it's a very man-centered gospel. But here, Jesus just pronounced, gives this strong pronouncement, I give them eternal life. It is life forever. That is, just here in John 10, the scripture's affirmation. In fact, it's so strong. Look again at verse 28. He says, and they will never perish. And so there in the text, you have a positive. I give them eternal life. You have a negative. They will never perish. The thought is, you will never die. And it's said in the Greek language with a double emphatic, which means never, ever, never, ever will you perish. In other words, it's a strong word. Once he extends life to you, he can't remove it. God doesn't extend life to you and then have a bigger racer and then take your name out of the book of life. Once he gives you salvation, that salvation is secure. He gives you everlasting life. You'll never perish. And then look at verse 1028 again. He says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And again, the hand is a symbol of power. It is eternal salvation. It is forever. It is everlasting. But you are not only secure in Christ's hand. Look at the text again. He adds this. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. In other words, Jesus says, you're doubly secure. You're held by me and you're held by God the father. 
In other words, you're held in his hand, you're held in the father's hand. And so then he says, do you see that in 1030? I and the father are one. In other words, the basis for our eternal security does not rest with man, but it rests with God. And that's why we can be secure. And that's what we looked at last week. That is scripture's affirmation, the truth of scripture's affirmation. But there's a second truth. And here's the second is Scripture's warning of false security. The Scripture's warning of false security. I mean, you might even say, Scott, isn't it once saved, always, what? Saved. And my answer would be, yes, that would be true. Once saved, always saved, because no one's going to ever take you out of the Father's hand. No one's ever going to take you out of the Son's hand. However... Eternal security does not mean that all who profess Christ will be saved. In other words, the scripture warns of false security. And it does in many places. But can I just take you to one this morning? Look over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. This is false security. False security. We believe in the eternal security, but some people have a false security. You say, well, in what way, Scott? Well, in one of the greatest statements, I think, that our Lord Jesus Christ ever made on this issue, you remember he says this in 721. Just read 121 through 23, follow along. Not everyone, it's right here, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Beloved, maybe you've heard me say that before, but can you imagine standing before Christ On that day, on judgment day, and he were to say to any of you, depart from me, I never knew you. And I think it's obviously my desire to be faithful to you as a shepherd. But these words by the Lord Jesus Christ are a frightening truth. And it's not as though I want to come and give you insecurity But I want to show you that there's at least a warning here about false security. And here, my my heart for you is I don't want you to be deceived about your eternal security. In fact, if you look at the text again in 21, not everyone who says to me, these are not pagans, if you will. These are not atheists, if you will. Not everyone who says to me, to me. In other words, these people are verbalizing faith. In fact, look at verse 22 again. He says, on that day, the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, many will say to me on that day. In other words, here is a verbal profession of Christ. They say that they're in his kingdom. In fact, you say, well, Scott, is a verbal profession of Christ necessary? Well, absolutely. 
Of course it is. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And then it goes on to talk about with the mouth you profess. You have to profess Christ. But there's more to that in the scripture, is there not? In fact, let me just show you a few highlights of this text. First, their profession is proper. It's proper. Did you note it there in verse 21? They say to me, Lord. I mean, that is obviously a divine title. This is a proper title. This is an orthodox title. This is an accurate confession of Jesus Christ. You would agree with me that Jesus is Lord and these people give a profession that is proper. But secondly, they give a profession that is passionate. This is not a cold Lord, but this is a passionate Lord, Lord for emphasis, if you will. There's even a degree of zeal in this. And I would say, yes, there is, but it's not enough. In fact, would you note thirdly that the profession is public? Look at verse 22 again. Say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? In other words, this is a public profession. This is not a private religion. This is a public ministry that I would say, as you read, is miraculous. You say, well, Scott, did they really do that? You say, do what? Did they really do? Verse 22. And I would say, yeah, I think they did. Don't know if I would doubt that. You say, well, Scott, why do you say that? Well, Matthew 24, verse 24 says that false Christ and false prophets will arise and show you great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. In other words, there's coming a day, at least at the Olivet Discourse, where there will be false messiahs, false prophets, who will show you great signs and wonders. Don't know if I would doubt that. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 and 10, speaking of the Antichrist, it says that is the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders with all deception. So we do see recorded in Scripture, at least of that coming day, that there's going to be power and signs and false wonders, and with it, there's deception there. And so, beloved, I'm just saying to you, what better verbal profession could be made? It's proper. They've got Lord. It's passionate. They call him Lord, Lord. It's public. In other words, it's supernatural in its scope. And certainly, we affirm that no one who refuses to verbally acknowledge Jesus as Lord will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. But, it's, but not all who say, Lord, Lord are true believers. It's a very fascinating text. Not all who say that are true believers. You say, well, why? Well, look at the text again in verse 23. These are not my words. It's the words of Jesus. I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you. I never knew you. You say, well, did the Lord know who they were? Well, of course he did. God is omniscient. 
He certainly knows everything there is to be known. But the word know here, and you know this, speaks of an intimate relationship. It speaks of not just a relationship, but one that's intimate and personal. In fact, Amos 3.2 said, Did God to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He didn't mean that the Jewish people were the only nation that he knew. He was saying that they were the only nation that he had an intimate, personal relationship with. In fact, Jesus said here in the context that we looked at in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I, what? I know them. He's speaking in that phrasing of an intimate, personal relationship. In fact, that word know here, I never knew you, embodies an abiding relationship, intimate relationship. Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, 23, I never had an intimate relationship with you. Depart from me. So then you might be asking right now, then how can I know my faith is genuine? I I mean, Scott, if the miracle workers were doing miracles, presumably yes, then you might be saying, then how can I know if I've got the real thing? Well, look at the text again in verse 21. No, it says this. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he says, not everyone will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Watch this, 721. But the one who, here's the phrase, does the will of my father who is in heaven. So, beloved, very clearly, you can see here the issue is not what you say. It's not even necessarily what you hear, though that would be important on both of those aspects. It's rather what you, what? Do. That's the issue. Now, of course, he's not talking about salvation by works here, nor is he talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about the direction of your life. I mean, to put it perfectly blunt with you, you could believe in the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and not be saved. So, Scott, that's a strong statement. Yes, but you would agree with me that in the book of James, it says even the demons believe and what? Shudder. It's one of the most remarkable things when I taught through the gospel of Mark is to see that the demons had a greater understanding of the person of Christ than the disciples until the very end of Mark's gospel. Is it now time, Holy One? We know who you are. Are you going to torment us at this time? They are far more aware of who he is than the disciples until after the resurrection. But even the demons believe and shudder. Let me say it this way. You can profess him publicly. You can recite a creed. You can get baptized. You can go on a missions trip. But if your profession is not marked by obedience to Jesus as your Lord, then your profession is seen to be shallow and you are unknown by Jesus. It's a strong word, isn't it? The great scholar D.A. Carson said this, In balance, he said, it is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom of God because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. He said, it is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life 
inevitably results in obedience. And Carson said any other view of grace cheapens grace and it turns it into something unrecognizable. So here's what we have. There's an affirmation from Scripture on eternal security. We're sure. We're saved. It's stated as such. I give them eternal life. But in Scripture, there's also a warning about a false security. So you say, well, Scott, then how can I really be sure that I have eternal life? Can you tell me a little bit more? Yes. And that brings to the third truth, okay? Is Scripture's declaration of true security. Scripture's declaration of true security. And I want to turn you back to 1 John. Let me take you to John's epistle that he wrote. Not the gospel of John, but look over at 1 John at the very end of your Bible. Here is Scripture's declaration of true security. And what I want to do with you today is give you just briefly four legs of a chair. Can I do that? If you want to sit down and you want to be sure this is real, well, I don't want you on a two-legged chair. I want you on a four-legged chair. So I could call these the four pillars of saving faith, or we can call them the four legs of a chair that when you sit on it is going to provide the weight that you need to sit on that chair. And so I look at these four pillars, or four legs, if you will, as what anchors, if you will, and gives assurance to the believer and the security of a believer. And so I want you to be sure, and I want you to be able to not only be sure, but you're talking to people all the time, are you not? I talk to people all the time. I talk to people who have background with Christ 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but there's no difference in their life. And you talk to people all the time. So I both want to equip you, but I also want to give you something practical. How do I know that I'm settled on the right thing? Okay? Well, here's the first leg of a chair, and I'm in 1 John chapter 5, 1. It's a doctrinal test. Okay? He's going to give you a doctrinal test. He's going to give you a relational test. He's going to give you a moral test. And he's going to give you a purity test. But the first leg is a doctrinal test. And here's the leg, is you believe in Christ. You believe in Christ. Look over at 5, 1, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In other words, he wants to put this out along with the Gnostics that were teaching false truth. What can you stand on? What is your anchor? Where does your security lie? What gives somebody true assurance? And here it is. It's a doctrinal test. You believe in Christ. Now, you'll look again at 5.1. It says everyone. In other words, that would include all who have trusted in Christ. And then at the same time, it would exclude anyone else. So it strengthens the believer, but it excludes anyone who does not believe. Now, look what he says again in 5.1. Everyone who believes. Stop there just for a second. Belief in the scripture is a wholehearted dedication to the person of Christ. When you see that word belief, it is much more than only or merely intellectual understanding. It is a personal commitment to the person of Christ. In fact, glance down in 1 John 5.5. Whoever, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, he's going to define that a little bit here in 5.1. He says, whoever or everyone who believes, and watch the, the, the names here, that Jesus is the Christ. He first uses Jesus. You've got to affirm his humanity. You've got to affirm that God sent his son into this world. But you're not just affirming his humanity. Look at 5.1. You're believing that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, he's the promised Messiah out of the Old Testament. In other words, it becomes very easy to recognize that Jesus is the object of saving faith. And it is an active commitment to him. In fact, look back just a few chapters in 1 John 2, 22. I mean, I don't think it could be any clearer in the word of God. Who is the liar in 2.22? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, it says there, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Conversely, whoever confesses, uh, it says, the Son has the Father also. In other words, you've got to believe in the person of Christ, his humanity, his deity, if you will. Look over at 1 John chapter 3 in verse 23. It says there, and this is his commandment, 323, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You've got to put your faith in that name in that wonderful person. That is the testimony of the scripture. Look over at 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. It says there, by this we know the spirit of God. How do we know, John? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Look at verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so here's the first leg. So how can I know? Well, you can't believe everything. You've got to believe in the person that God sent, Jesus. That's his humanity, the Messiah. That's his claim to be the Messiah promised, that the fact that he's the son of God, that he is of God's family, that he is deity. Look over at 1 John four fifteen. another statement there. John doesn't want us to miss this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So to believe in Christ, beloved, is to affirm his deity. Chapter 1, 1 through 3. It is to trust his death to cleanse us from sin, John 1, 7. It is to believe his work on the cross, 1 John 4, 9, as an expression of God's love. Listen, whatever one claims to be, if you do not believe that Jesus, okay, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God, you are not, in this text, born of God, okay? Listen, a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness who denies the deity of Christ, who denies his sonship, 
who denies his humanity is not a believer. I don't care how nice they are. You're not sitting on this chair that the scripture speaks from. So this is very important. This is where security comes from. Security means you better have the right currency with God. And here's at least that first leg here is you've got to trust Christ. That word believe, by the way, just a little footnote in 1 John 5, 1, is in the present tense. It's the ideal of continuing to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is the one, look in 5, 1, who has been born of God. It is your continual belief in Christ that proves that you are actually born again. Your faith is not holding on, if you will, but God is actually who begot you, is causing you to have a permanent faith. The initiative is God's. You say, well, Scott, what about the people who stop believing? What about the people who I grew up with going to Emmanuel? What about the people who I grew up going to school at Clay or going at Rafer and they were part of the group and they seemed to do everything? Scott, I've been in the baptismal waters and you're saying, but they have nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's where the dilemma comes in. Am I granting them security? Well, not according to this. The belief is continual. You say, well, then what happened to them, pastor? Well, they didn't lose it. They never, what? Had it, and I'll show you. Go back to 1 John chapter 2 in verse 19. Just turn back, and we've studied this, but you remember this. John is very clear. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us. He said, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not, what? Of us. It's not that people can lose it. It's better to say that people never had it. Listen, our perseverance to the end is the ongoing evidence that we have become a partaker of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those, at least in 1 John 5 1, who have been born of God, have been given the Holy Spirit to continue to believe in the first in the person of Christ. So here's the first leg. It's a doctrinal test. Believe in Christ. How about you? Is that your affirmation? Listen, I don't want to make more of it. In fact, maybe I I just want to state it as it is. You say, well, Scott, I I don't know everything. I'm not what I should be, but I do affirm that. I do affirm his humanity. I do affirm his deity. I do affirm and believe in the person of Christ that he was raised from the dead. I do affirm that he's the Messiah. Well, there's one leg. It's not all. There's a second leg, and we'll call it the relational test. The relational test. Look at 1 John 5, 1 again. And the relational test, namely, is you love God and others. Look at 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And, he's adding to it, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Here is the relational test. When you first read this verse, your immediate thought, I I think is to think the phrase means if you love God, you're also going to love his son, which would be true. But that's not what the text says. It says, does the text, everyone who loves the father, look again at it in 5.1. Loves, at the end of 5.1, whoever has been born of him. In other words, he's saying those who love God 
will also love fellow believers. Just clear. The believer who loves God loves God's family. And so loving one another becomes the outward evidence that one is truly born of God. Does that make sense? If you love him, you'll love his people. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir here. But this is the mark. This is the second leg. It's a relational leg on that chair. It's you not only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but secondly, you love God's people. You want to be with God's people. You, you want to encourage God's people. You're part of God's family, and you feel that connection to his family. In fact, the last thing you would do in true faith is walk an aisle, pray a prayer, go to the camp, raise your hand, and then for years never show up with God's people. What I'm telling you, beloved, is this, and I want to shepherd you. I'm not trying to be caustic. I'm not trying to be mean, okay? But I am trying to tell you, here's the proactive parts of a chair that's stable. It begins with a doctrinal test, but it moves into a relational test. You could see it in 5.1 there. Whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You just love his family. Now, John kept saying this over and over. Just look back for a second in chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and I'll just highlight a few of these. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Now, you, you just kind of think, that he says something more about that, doesn't he? No. Do you just love the people of God? He doesn't talk about a doctrinal statement per se. doesn't talk about the body of knowledge that you hold or don't have. He says, all you got to do, here it is. You got to put your hope in Christ. And then secondly, you got to love other people. And when you love other people, when you love your brother, you abide in the light. And in him, there's no cause for stumbling. Look back at it again in 2.10. Whoever in verse 11 hates his brother is in the what? Is in the darkness. Do you just love the people of God? And you say, Scott, is there something more? No. You love the people of God. Do you move your life around the family of God? Do you want to be here in the preaching of the word? Do you want to be with each other in the week? Do you have more value with the people of God than you do in the people of the world? That is part of a leg of a chair that is secure. In fact, look at John 3.10, 1 John 3.10. It says, it is evidence who the children of God are. John's really clear. Here's Here's how it's evident. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his, what? Brother. Listen, the older I get, the more I realize the importance of this. And for you young people, I'm not just talking about going to church. It's way deeper than that. It means you value this more than any athletic competition. It means you value the people of God and you want your life to be around the people of God. And certainly there's seasons but you can't love God and hate your brother. In fact, look at 1 John 4, 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. It says, For love is from God, and whoever loves, there it is, has been born of God and knows God. You understand his point. You you can say, did we not do this? Did we not do this? God's just going to say to us on that last day, listen, did you just love the flock And I don't think it just means only local church. Do you just love the people of God? 
There's people of God all over in our community. In other words, you have a a love for both the local expression of the church and the universal expression of the church. In other words, you want to be around those people. You want to love those people. Look down in chapter 4 in verse 20. It says there, if anyone says, in other words, verbal profession, it's kind of cheap. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? Liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, has, who, who, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What a, what a picture there. This is the commandment from him. Look at 421. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the idea is if you love the father, you love his family, don't you? Listen, you could have false assurance, but that's not my heart this morning. I want you to have true assurance. Here's the leg. Here's one leg is a doctrinal test. You believe on Christ. Secondly, a relational test. You love God and others. Thirdly, I'll call it the moral test. The moral test is you're obedient to God's command, okay, or commands. You're obedient to God's commands. Look at 5.2. By this, we know we love the children of God or that we love the children of God when we love God and obey God. His commandments. A very interesting verse. In other words, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and when we obey his commandments. In other words, you can't love God and his commandments without loving other believers. You cannot love the children of God without loving God and keeping his commandments. These statements confirm and prove each other. If either statement is found alone, faith is not genuine. In other words, you keep his commandments. Just glance back and Chapter 3, for a moment, will you, in verse 22, it says there, it says actually in 323, this is the commandment. It says in 323 that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And so we love God, we keep his commandments, we love other believers. You say, well, Scott, is this hard to do? Well, no, go back to 1 John chapter 5. It said in verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not what? Burdensome. See, the, the real believer has a change of heart. He's been born again. She's been born again. Whatever they used to hate, they now love. And whatever they used to love, they now hate. Whatever they used to pursue, they no longer have joy in pursuing. And the things they used to stay away from, the things of God, they now find themselves pursuing. In other words, you love people, but here you obey his commandments, and his commandments are not even burdensome. But you know this is a real test. I call it the moral test. Look back at 1 John chapter 2 in verse 3. It says this, he couldn't be any clearer. I'm just trying to give you what is true security. He says in 1 John 2, 3, by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his what? It's right there. You say, well, Scott, I'm not perfect. Well, neither am I. I don't think he's talking about perfection here. I just think he's talking about the sustained direction of your life. He's talking about not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. In other words, you want to obey him. Oh, you can't keep all the commandments. Romans 7, the thing I want to do, I don't want to find myself not doing, right? Or I don't want to do this, but I do this, and I want to do this, but I don't. Okay. Say, well, then how do you make sense of that? Listen, what's the direction of your life? What's the pattern of your life? 
Who's your Lord and master? Oh, we're going to have times that we trip up. But here the true test, the strong leg of a real chair is that you keep his commandments in an ongoing practical way. It says if you don't keep them, you're a liar. It says it right there. Look at verse 4. Did we read that? Whoever to four, whoever says I know him, verbalized, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the what? The truth is not in him. Listen, beloved, I just share with you, I'm not like, uh, I'm not upset at any of you today. I I don't want to like, I don't even, I'm trying to be self-controlled to act like I'm not preaching this to you. But if the shoe fits, wear it, okay? You do not want to get to that day and think you're secure, but it's based on something false. You say, well, Scott, how can I know what's true? Well, you, you got, you believe Christ, you, you, you love his family, and thirdly, as a rule of life, you obey his commandments. You, you say, where does it say that? Right here. So I feel like I have to step up into this area in our time on this day, and if you're visiting with us, I act like I'm kind of hard-nosed, when really the most loving thing I can do or we can do is make sure that people don't have a false assurance. Now, I don't want to go have everybody doubt that, but just look at these things that are stated in the Scripture. It's right there. In fact, go over to 1 John chapter 3. This is so clear here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, do you see how it says it there? Is of the what? The devil, 3.8. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What do you mean he can't keep on sinning? Can't keep on sinning as a rule of life can't keep on sinning with the lifestyle that he once held because now when his heart's been changed, he wants to please God. He wants to love God. Not perfectly, but that's the desire. Look at verse 10, chapter 3. But he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? There's the third leg and here's the fourth leg and we're all done. It's what I just call the purity test, the purity test, and it's just right there. It's the fourth leg and final leg. Our time is out, but you can see it there in chapter 5, verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God, what does it say? Overcomes the world. You say, what is it that overcomes the world? The people who are born of God. You say, well, Scott, why do those who are born of God overcome the world? Because the new birth gives us the victory over the world. Listen, without the, without the new birth, keeping the commands of God would be impossible. But when he gives you a new heart and you become a genuine believer, you begin to overcome the world. And whatever you used to be, you're now not because there's been a transformation in your life. Listen, here's three clarifying truths on the eternal security of the believer. The first truth was the affirmation of our eternal security right there in John 10. The second truth was the scripture's warning of a false security. It moves way beyond just a profession, but to a lifestyle. 
And then the third truth was the scripture's declaration of true security. And that answers the question, how can I be sure? Here's the four-legged chair, okay? The believer born of God believes on Christ, loves God and others, is obedient to the commands of God, and overcomes the world. Now listen, if that's true of you, then be assured If it's not true, if you talk with one another, become sure. But Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1.13. He said, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. So it's important that we look at this and have an honest appraisal. I don't want to cause any of you to doubt. In fact, I'm just giving you the four legs of true saving faith, the four pillars of true assurance. If those are yours, then rest assured. You say, but Scott, if you teach the eternal security of the believer, then you'll cause people to sin. And I say, oh, no. The true believer who understands the grace of God will become so overwhelmed by the love of God, so overwhelmed by the grace of God, that the last thing that that man or woman will ever do is abuse the grace that's been given to them, Kim, right? And so listen, we love each other. We we grow. We love God. But listen, That's where assurance lies. If you placed your faith in that, if you have, then you can understand the assurance when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Here's a way to test that, amen?